You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, and in this episode, I thought I would go through a few really, really good questions we had posted recently to the Master Photography Facebook group. If you're not a member of that group, I get it if you don't use Facebook and you want to stay away. I'm, I'm really thinking about starting up something else. I might try it with Photo Taco first. I tried Discord, and it's like a ghost town over there. There's not a lot of photographers who overlap with gamers who are familiar with Discord. And I thought it would be a good platform, but there's some things I don't like about Discord too. So I, I think I'm going to give up on that soon. And I'm going to see about pursuing something else, but we'll, we'll see. What, but for now, the Facebook group is kind of the place where the community is at. And I really love the Facebook groups. It's just hard because I can't reach most of you. <laughs> if I if I create a post, we reach like less than 1% of you. And and if you're not seeing posts, it we're, there's tons happening in the Facebook group all the time. But um, Facebook kind of chooses who gets to see those posts in your feed. And you might be missing out on a lot of conversation. So um, it's just not ideal for a platform. But it's what we have right now. And it produced some really good content this time. If you want to join that group, there's links in the show notes to be able to do that. You do have to name a host on the show. I continue to see lots of people asking to join the group that don't name a host that's been on the show. And I know immediately you are not a listener. You're either a bot or a spammer and or or someone who's just kind of like peripherally interested in photography but doesn't know the show. And uh, we only want listeners in the group. So you have to answer that question. So Jeff will work since I'm hosting this episode and, and a lot of them. Okay, let's get to these questions then. What it is that I wanted to talk about today. So the there's uh, three different questions that I profiled or I pulled out that happened this last week. And I just thought they were all really good questions. Um, we had lots of listeners, other listeners providing help. And, and uh, there's some stuff I wanted to correct a little bit, at least as far as I've tested and, and how I have observed things. And let's let's get into it. So the first one is sharing images on social media. And I've, we talked about this a little bit, uh, for sure on Photo Taco. I think here in Master Photography, we have to. We've, this, this topic tends to come up periodically and things change over time. So what something we shared a year ago on this topic may not be exactly the same today. And so it's kind of good to refresh it refresh it easy for me to see every once in a while. So here's the question. Matthew Wells, he posted into the Master Photography Facebook group. He said, I am not sure what is happening with Instagram. I've noticed that some of the pictures, when I start to post them, it strips out some of the editing, but only with the JPEGs that I've saved out of Photoshop, Lightroom exports posts as they were edited. They they look the same. I'm interpreting his question here a little bit. Strange, but I don't know if this is an Instagram issue or an Adobe issue. That's the end of his his question. Okay, so and then he he posted a, a couple of example images. He posted one of his edit kind of right from his computer, and another one that was how it looked on Instagram. And they do look different. Like the the colors are just far more vibrant. There's kind of a 
a brownish reddish color in the wings of a bird there's a really bright or uh, yellow beak there's a, a brown eye that's perfectly sharp and focused it's a very well done image matthew should be excited about that image that you've created there um but yeah i can see why you're a little disappointed to see it on instagram you're like where's all my detail my colors my vibrance it, it just doesn't look the same totally understand your concern. And I'm so glad that you were engaged in the community, posted the question so that other people could see it and benefit from, from learning it. Because almost all the time, don't I, I really hope that you're not afraid to post a question like this in the group. Because first of all, we work really hard to make sure that people have, it's a, it's a safe environment to be able to post these questions and get good answers, that you're not going to be belittled or berated or bullied or anything like that. We we try our best to keep those people out or kick them out if they if they manage to get into the group. And we the, the listeners are, are mostly just super helpful, super supportive. We are all, that's the whole premise of the show, right? The, the podcast is about people that are progressing in their photography together. And I, we're really striving to have that be the community that's there. And like, there's no dumb questions. Even if there's been previous answers, it's not super easy to search in Facebook to be able to see those answers. You can go to the websites. That's a really good resource to be able to find podcast episodes that may have that topic. So masterphotographypodcast.com, there's a search bar and you can go search through it. And uh, Photo Taco Podcast, the other podcast that I do. And, and I have a lot of resources over there where I've spent a lot of time developing some really in-depth guides and help for photographers to be able to figure out some of the really technical stuff that ends up happening in photography. So again, thank you for asking this question, Matthew, and being brave enough to do that. I hope it will encourage others to similarly engage. So um, let a very helpful listener provided some some feedback on this faster than I could or any of the other hosts. And uh, and he said, use sRGB and scale the exported JPEG to have the long edge 2048 pixels, which so far been total agreement. And then he said, the size will prevent compression on social media platforms, which can muck up your black levels and colors. And this I have to disagree with a little bit. Not to say that like the listener that provided this advice, thank you for engaging. Thank you for providing the information you did. I just want to address a tiny bit of this I know is different from that. So let's start with the part I disagree with on that advice, and that's the social media compression aspect. Uh, the social media networks are not running a charity service, right? <laughs> we all know this. Like We are the product in those networks. The information that we're sharing, the almost addictive nature of this stuff uh, we are the product, and, and it's because they can market to us. They can add, they provide ads. They uh, they provided this platform now where people can pay for ads to reach demographics. Um, they have like guaranteed viewers in because there's so many people that are in these social networks. We all know this. This is nothing new, and they have to protect their bottom line by keeping their operating expenses as controlled as possible. They make more money the less operating overhead they have. And and so one of the things that all of them have to do is they got to make sure these images are as tiny as they can possibly be. And so they are it, it they are going to compress your image 
period. It, it doesn't matter how you upload it. And I, I know it, now this may have been different in the past. Several years ago, there may have been uh, times where you could have pixel dimensions. As long as you were under those pixel dimensions, they wouldn't touch the image. Or, or if you were under a certain size limit on the image, then they wouldn't touch it. And they'd just use the image however you uploaded it, which would be great because then we get to decide what the compression is going to be like. And, and we can try to make it so that it looks better without some automated algorithm just ran, you know, doing the job. That's not true today. Here in 2020, every social media network is going to compress your image. It does not matter what your pixel dimensions are. It does not matter the DPI, which never matters actually. And there's a link in the show notes that has a massive explanation about DPI I did with my friend Don Kamarechka. He's he's a wonderful photographer and a really smart guy that you you should go check out that information if you want to know about DPI. But it doesn't matter that, and it doesn't matter the quality level either, which you might think could because that influences or has a really determines the file size of the image and it, it doesn't matter even though I do recommend 77% um, as the quality level in both Lightroom and Photoshop when you do export as in Photoshop 77 is the magic number it's awesome you don't need any other tooling you don't need artificial intelligence it is the default setting that you should use I'm not going to go into why but believe me there's technical reasons for that 77 very magical number that you, that you should be using when you're exporting for social media networks um, and then there's other reasons to do that for, or other situations too but again not going into that because that's not the topic here the point is it's going to be compressing your images it does not matter how you export them and that really wasn't what uh, what was being seen here with the the image looking kind of faded and not as deep and the colors less vibrant and all of that that was a color profile issue and that's that's the part of advice that was spot on use srgb is what the the listener said in response to the question right at the beginning and that's exactly what needed to happen here so in lightroom this almost happens automatically by default when you do uh, a right click on an image in the develop module and you do export image uh, export and it, it brings up by default it's going to try to export to JPEG and by default it's going to do it in the sRGB color space and uh, by default it's also going to attach the profile or embed the pro that sRGB profile into the image as well and that's all great that's why he was seeing that's why Matthew was seeing things work okay from Lightroom because it kind of does this for you when you're in Lightroom Photoshop not necessarily. Again, it kind of depends on how you do this in Photoshop, but it's totally possible to do exactly the same thing as it happens in Lightroom. You just got to make sure the right selections are made when you do this. So in Photoshop, when you're exporting, you do. Uh, it's kind of a newer way to do this. It's something that Adobe introduced uh, actually probably about two years ago. They have an export as dialog box now instead of it used to be like save for web and that's still technically there in photoshop and you can get to it but they really want you to use export as and there's newer algorithms that are there in export as and and that's probably the thing that you should be using so um, i have a, an image in the show notes that that illustrates this but there's two check boxes you need to make sure are checked when you do export as there's one that says convert to srgb and there's another that says embed color profile. You got to make sure both are checked when you're exporting for social media and or actually for the web in general. The web uses the sRGB color space. 
And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It just means you just want to make sure these two checkboxes are checked. And color management in general is kind of a really big and complicated topic. We've talked about it on, on both here in the Master of Photography podcast and over in the Photo Taco podcast. So you can go again to the websites and do searches on color and color management and see what episodes are there so you can try to get more information on that. Um, I, I'm really thinking about doing like a full color management guide over at phototacopodcast.com. Um, it, it's not there yet, but there are episodes that talk about or touch on this. But suffice it to say, you just you want to make sure those two checkboxes are checked and then things end up looking well. And Matthew confirmed once he got that information and, and he tried it, uh, he confirmed, yep, now stuff looks like it matches in Instagram like I was hoping it would from the beginning. And his exports from Photoshop and from Lightroom both look about the same and, and look like it looked as he was editing things. Um, so one other thing to to mention that I wanted to bring up before we leave this topic of uh, resizing images for social media, um, the, the point about 2048 on the long edge I still do like that advice, just not for the reason that was given. It's it's not going to make the social network not compress your images. Your that social network is going to compress your image. It just is. It's going to change it. It's going to compress your image. And there's really almost there's nothing that you can do about it. So here's but here's why I still like the idea of resizing the image down to 2048 on the longest edge. It's because it makes the images smaller. The file size of the image, I should say, is is smaller, especially if you're going to uh, upload more than one image and you're going to do it to more than one network. It may seem like a trivial thing, and, and it kind of is, unless you're doing you know thousands and thousands of images every month. But a lot of us have like data allotments or data caps that we have on our bandwidth every month from our, our internet service provider. I know I do. I only get a terabyte. I think is, is it a terabyte? I, I can't remember for sure, but there's a cap. And if I go over it, I have to pay extra. I have to pay a certain amount of money per like gigabyte over or whatever. I, I can't remember what the cap number is right now, right at the top of my head, but we have caps. And, and so the, whatever you can do to kind of limit how much data you're using on your internet provider is a good thing. And resizing the image to 2048 is going to make the image much, much smaller. And then if you do the quality 77, that'll also make it smaller. And now it's going to take less time to upload and you're going to use less of your data cap in doing it. So it's, it's a helpful thing. Is it going to really make a massive difference? Yeah, probably not. Unless you're doing, like I said, thousands of images every month. And some of you could be, um, then it probably won't make a massive difference, but I still agree. Like I still personally, I resize my images. When I export, I export a full res version. I still use 77% on the quality, um, uh, for my website and make it so that it's available for licensing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I export a social version that is sized at 2048 on the long edge and has, and it ends up being much, much f smaller file size. And then that's what I use to share on all the social media. And uh, it just makes it go faster and, and use less of my own data. So I still do like the advice. It's just not to avoid compression. Um, the last thing is I want to mention a script or a free tool that can really help you here. It's something that is uh, really great. My good friend, Greg Benz, who's been on the show before with us and is one of the mo the best Photoshop gurus that I know. He uh, he has a technical knowledge of the ins and outs of Photoshop. 
um, that I think is really almost unrivaled, who isn't a, an Adobe engineer. <laughs> he's, he's really good. He's also the guy who's written the my favorite add-on in Photoshop for doing luminosity masking, and that's Lumenzia. So you should check that out if you want to learn it. He's got courses on how to how to use it. It's it's incredible. But he's made free. Lumendia is a paid for product, but for free, he has something that he calls the web sharpening script. And this is a script that you can use to sharpen your images so that they look good on the web. As things are being presented on the web, you know, it's on phones, it's on screens. It has to be sharpened differently than you might for print or or other uses like your website even if you're going to sell images from your website you you probably don't want you want it sharpened differently for that than you do for showing something on the web and greg's written a script that does a really good job of being able to like resize the image uh apply sharpening and do a, a good job of like of compression to make it so that your image ends up being kind of the smallest it can be and still look really, really good. It's awesome. I've been using it for a while now for my images. So if you've seen me posting to social media, the images that I have produced uh, over the last several months, that's a result of, of Greg's script. I take every image that I want to share on social media through that script. Um, and, and it's, it's awesome totally free. I'll have a link in the show notes of how you get it. You go to his website. You do have to sign up to be, to get his email newsletter, uh, a fair exchange, I think for the, for the functionality of the script to give up your email address to, to Greg so that he can send you other interesting things that he's up to, uh, which is, so I, I think it's only a benefit. The newsletter is also a great resource for photographers. So Greg's not, uh, promoting this at all. It just happens to be a tool. I really like that applies to this subject matter and this question that I wanted to bring up here. All right, let's move on to the next question. The second of three, uh, the next one was about vibrant sunset colors. And this is long time listener and participant in the Facebook group. His name is Frank Gallagher. Frank's been there a long time, probably as long as me. And he posted in there this, this question. He said, post-processing question for the hive mind. I'm photographing a sunset and the dynamic range fits nicely into a single exposure if I expose to the right. When I do that, I can never seem to recover the colors of the sunset, especially if they were originally pastels. You'd think that reducing exposure or highlights or both would work, but the colors, reds, pinks, and oranges remain faint. It's as if by exposing to the right, the camera doesn't record enough saturation to bring the colors back. Using saturation, vibrance, and HSL sliders aren't much help either and typically result in a fake-looking image. Using a Nikon D750, if any of you Nikon users have any tips, in the image here, and he, he shared it, and I'll have it in the show notes, a good chunk of the sky was rich pastel pink with an orange tint closer to the horizon, and who knows what Facebook will do to the colors. I totally agree there. <laughs> Facebook, it's going to compress the image. We just talked about that. It will do that, and it will impact the image quality, uh, regardless of how you exported it. Okay, so a beautiful image, beautiful, beautiful image. You, you need to go check it out just to see the image. What an incredible, I love it when you get these kind of sunset, almost it's kind of like golden hour or just after golden hour sorts of colors, the purples, the pinks, the blue. I, I love it. I love being out seeing that. And, and he's done a really good job capturing it. And if you're not familiar with exposed to the right, 
that is a, a technique to use to get the, the highest quality images out of your camera. And I know there's lots of people that are going to think, no, no, exposed to the right. That's not you want. I'd rather deal with a little bit of noise in the shadows and 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 uh, underexposed than, than overexposed. And you're absolutely right. You the sin, the absolute sin in capturing a scene, a landscape scene is to overexpose the highlights. If you get them to be pure white, there's no coming back. There's nothing you can do in post-processing. There's no way to get that information back. You've blown it and it's it's bad. But the way the image sensors work, as close as you can get to that sin line, <laughs> the boundary there, the better the, the processor performs and the higher image quality. So Frank's question here is like, okay, I'm exposing to the right, just like you know, we've said to do, it's, I should be getting really good images and I'm disappointed in the color. And so here's, I have two suggestions that I offered Frank for being able to do this. So the first suggestion was double process the image. And that means you process the image once for the foreground, which is in this case, of course, a, a sunset. So it's kind of dark. There's trees and, and a dock, it looks like, over some water. And you may want to have the details of that be darker, be uh, less visible and processed in a specific way. And then you might want the rest of it, the water, the sky, to be processed a totally different way so that you can emphasize the colors better. And so, and, and in Lightroom, if you try to do this on a single image, there's challenges to it and there's some things you can do adjustment brushes are a really good way to be able to try to do this especially because there's some like limited luminosity masking you can do with range masks on adjustment brushes and then uh, paint things so that it, it will apply uh, some things to, to part just where the adjustment brush has been painted but it's not a replacement at all for photoshop so there's there's kind of two ways to double process an image. It's a little confusing to say it that way, but here's here's the two things. You could, in Lightroom, process the, the raw file for the foreground and then make a virtual copy of the raw file, which is not duplicating the photo on your hard drive. It's just in Lightroom making kind of a duplication of the processing that was used. And then in the virtual copy, change all the processing so that it is now processing for the water in the sky. And it could be vice versa. It doesn't matter if you do the foreground on the raw or the sky on the raw. Either way, you just you you do the processing you like on on the raw, then right click and say make create a virtual copy and do the processing the other way on the virtual copy. Then you bring both of those images into Photoshop as layers or as smart objects and you blend them together using layer masking, or probably even better would be luminosity masking. And that's again, my friend Greg Benz has some awesome stuff for that. Okay, so that's one way to do it where you kind of start in Lightroom and do the majority of your processing in Lightroom. The other way would be to really just bring them both into Photoshop, bring the raw file into Photoshop as a smart object. Um, if you do it just straight off your hard drive and do file open in Photoshop, it's going to bring up camera raw and you can do some, some adjustments there. And, and then you'll end up with a smart object with those camera raw adjustments. Then you right click on that smart object and you do new smart object via copy. And this is very different. You got to make sure you do this exactly that way. You can't just clone the layer because then it clones the raw file. And if you change the raw file, you change it in both layers. So in order to make this so that the adjustments you're making are separated and you're using smart objects, you need to make sure you do that new smart object via copy. 
And then you process the two layers in Photoshop. You never went in, you don't have to even be in Lightroom at all. And, and then of course you still have to blend the two layers together again, layer masking or luminosity masking is probably how I would do it. And so that that's one technique. It's kind of a more advanced technique, but boy, can you get some incredible results by doing that? You can process your layers differently and it just, it, it, it makes it look like you had more dynamic range in the scene, even though you only had one shot. It, it's, it's just, it provides a capability to be able to do editing uh, much better than just Lightroom sliders that are, are limited in nature on what you're going to do. The other technique I, I thought he could try is simpler. It's not it's not nearly as hard. If what I just went through seems like way too difficult for, for you, then here's another thing to try. And, and this is what Frank did try, and this worked for him. He really liked the result that he was getting. He's um, the other one is called is is using the calibration panel in Lightroom Classic, and this is a panel that I think most photographers don't realize is there or use it. They um, they just don't go that deep into the develop module. So this is a panel, it, and you might have thought as I was heading into this, well, the HSL panel, why can't you go in there? That's If you want more vibrant colors, then you can go in the HSL panel, saturation, and boost the saturation or even uh, perhaps decrease the luminance of the colors and the combination of the two does usually make the color look more vibrant. Um, the challenge with HSL panel is more often than not, as I have tried to use it, and that had been my go-to tool for this kind of a solution in the past, you end up with banding in the image. It it happens a lot. Um, now, if you do a little bit, it, it's not a problem usually, but if you try to take it to kind of middle of the slider or beyond, then it, it looks like there's banding and just the, the algorithm and how Lightroom is changing those colors, it, it ends up causing problems frequently. I've just seen that a lot in the images that I processed. Totally fair to go try it. Totally good to go in that HSL panel, give those sliders a whirl and see how it is. Maybe export an image and take a look at it. Make sure you like the results. And, and if you like what you're getting using those sliders, by all means, keep using those sliders and do whatever it takes to make it so that you're getting the image you want. But I also think you should take a look at the calibration panel. So it's in the library or the develop module. It's the very last panel in the list. It's called calibration. <clears throat> and I used to think that this was like calibrating white balance because that's sort of what it looked like. It has tint and it has red, green, and blue, and it it didn't look to me like it was similar to what the HSL panel was trying to do, like dealing with colors. It just, it, but it is. <laughs> that's what it's totally there for, is to try to make it so that you can make some changes to color. So you do have a little bit of a white balance change. There's a shadows slider and there's tint and there's green on the left and magenta on the right. So there is there is that slider and that kind of does have to do a lot more with with kind of some some white balance sorts of changes. But underneath that there's red primary, green primary and blue primary and you have hue, saturation sliders under each of those things. So you get to control of the RGB channels, you get to control the hue, the saturation of both very similar to what you see in the HSL panel. It's presented a little differently, but it's it's really super similar. And there's a difference though. There's, there's a different algorithm 
in Lightroom behind this calibration panel than there is in the HSL panel. And my experience with it has been, and again, my friend Greg Benz has a fabulous video on this where he he illustrated this, or he's also come to the same conclusion, that this seems to be a safer way to be able to adjust the hue and saturation of your colors than the HSL panel as far as banding goes and being and seeing like issues with banding in your colors. So uh, I think this is a, a really good thing to try and if you want to get more saturation in your colors. And I want to make sure you're aware of it so that you you see this panel and and uh, are know that it's a tool in your toolbox. If you're trying to do something with color, this is something to check out. For sure. So Frank gave that a try and he was much happier <laughs> with the with the colors that he was able to get out of his image. So thanks for posting that question, Frank. And uh, and I hope everyone can kind of see that or or play around with that. All right. Last question before I wrap up this episode that came from the Facebook group. And this one was a super long question from and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to mispronounce her name, but it's Kara. Allison McMahon Holdman. And I just don't know if it's Kara or Kara. People have, they say things differently. So I'm going to call you Kara. I hope it's not Kara, but (laughs) maybe you can, you can correct me when I post this, uh, this episode in the Facebook group, you can let me know uh, pronunciation guide or something for your name, but she posted a a really good, but a very long question. And I don't want to spend all the time to read through the entire question here. Um, it's in the Facebook group, but I, I'm going to, to summarize the question was, um, it, about finding a new laptop. Um, she's looking at using a laptop for doing some photo editing. And I've gone through this a lot with listeners about the, um, do you really, really need a laptop? Like there's such a price penalty. It's so much more expensive to get a good computer in a laptop than it is a desktop. Although on the Apple side of things, yeah, it's, it's not really the case. The MacBook pro is one of their more solid options for photo editing and the Mac mini gets by and it does pretty good. If I've got listeners who have invested in a Mac mini because, uh, they, they loaded it the way that I said, I suggested they should over in the photo taco podcast. And they're thrilled about how it performs. Uh, but it's the MacBook Pro 15 inch with the graphics card. You certainly can get a little more out of it. Uh, on the PC side, though, it's not the same. On the PC side, there's so many options. And there's definitely, and her concern, her primary concern was how, can I make sure my laptop has good calibration capabilities? Like if I get a laptop, how do I know I'm going to be able to calibrate the screen? How do I know? It's going to have good color space and and it's going to represent my details and my colors correctly. And it seems like, and, and she's absolutely right, totally valid concern. There are definitely Windows laptops that are garbage with everything, with the components inside, with the screen that's on it. Cheap is cheap and you're not going to be happy or it's not going to do a very good job for photo editing. And I've got guides over at phototacopodcast.com that you can check out on recommendations of what things you need to look for to to get a a computer for photo editing. But here's the the thing, her specific question then about calibration and laptops. Her her concern was she, she prefers Windows. And yes, there are some photographers who feel that way. They just prefer Windows. I know all you Mac folks listening are like, why? I don't understand. And, uh, you know, it's okay. Let them love Windows. It's their thing. 
it's okay. They can love Windows. It's all right. Even if you hate it and despise it, they can love Windows. She feels more comfortable there. That's what she knows. She's productive there. And that's really important as a photographer. And if, especially if you're doing a business, I don't have any idea if, if Kara is a, a professional photographer, if this is how she makes her living. But um, but she's productive there. She feels comfortable there. And she'd like to stay there. But she was worried, like, do I need to buy a MacBook Pro in order to get a screen good enough to be able to do photo editing? And the answer is no, no, no. You, you don't have to do that. Now, it is true you can't buy a MacBook Pro that isn't good for photo editing, right? I mean, as far as the screen goes, you can certainly choose some options, uh, the low end that are going to be kind of challenges with the MacBook Pro, but their screens are phenomenal. Absolutely true. You can't really buy a MacBook Pro that doesn't have a really good screen that can totally be calibrated and is going to do an excellent job of showing you the full color space. Um, they're all um, P3 compliant these days, wide gamut color space support there. And if you don't know what that means, I have good news for you. I have a, a super detailed guide that walks through all this stuff. But um, what I wanted to say was on the PC side, that's not the case, but it you can buy garbage. Like I just said, you can definitely buy something that is not going to work. But there's also some that do. There's some really good ones that do. Very, very nice. My current preference, the one that I would buy if I was getting one right here in September of 2020, would be the X, the Dell XPS 15 inch. And they call it the new 15. Um, it's got the ports I want. It's got the options for the performance. And the screen is really good. Really, really good. Now, Dell has opted to do 100% Adobe RGB. Uh, versus the P3, but that it, it's okay. And um, they're both really, really good options for photo editing. So it's totally possible to stay with Windows, buy a PC, and the Dell XPS 15 I know is going to be good. There's others from, say, HP and Asus and Acer and, and Lenovo. They all have compelling offerings that are going to do a good job with this. You just have to kind of look at the details of the laptop you're looking at and figure out if how how well it's going to do with showing you your photos and your details. And I go through it all in a 3,900 word guide <laughs> that I've now published over at phototacopodcast.com. So if you want to check that out, I'll have a link in the show notes. It's what photographers should look for in a laptop screen. You can go and, and get all the technical mumbo jumbo that you have to like wade through in order to make sure the laptop you're looking at in the Windows world is one that's that's good enough for uh, representing the colors and contrast and, and everything that you need to do a good job with photo editing. All right, so those are the three questions I decided to do this episode on today. I hope everyone found something uh, good out of those questions. I thought that that was something I wanted to make sure the rest of you knew about since there's a very small percentage of you who were actually seeing the posts from the Facebook group. I thought I would go and, and specifically walk through those. My doodad of the week this week is totally free. <laughs> Sort of. You have to have a camera first that supports it. But it's the Canon Camera Connect app. I've talked about this app before. I talked about it as a, a shoot I did a while ago where it really helped me and saved me so that I could get the uh, the 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 angle, the view that I wanted in a, inside of a, sh a short room with a really important shoot I had with a, a lady who was who was uh, knew she was going to, to pass away in a few short months after the shoot or weeks after the shoot. She had cancer. 
it helped me then and was super, super important. And I just used it again. It just barely came up. So I, what this is, is it's a, an app you can have on your iOS or Android phone, totally free from Canon. And if you pair that with a Canon camera that has Wi-Fi built in, or even a camera where you can add a Wi-Fi card, though I do not recommend the Wi-Fi card add-on for uh, especially the the 7D Mark II. I've, I've given that a try. It's it's horrible. It's not worth the investment. But I, with the Canon ADD camera that I have, this works great. It's not super simple to get set up, even though the menu description says easy connect to do it. it it's not super easy. Um, but it, it, once you get through that, it works pretty well. It can kind of disconnect sometimes, especially if you like close the app. Uh, it, it doesn't immediately connect again. You kind of it, it, there's some challenges for sure. And I, I I see Canon getting better at this. I really want to try it on the newer cameras, the R5 and R6, to see how it works there, to see if, if it's improved. And the R5 especially will even do five gigahertz now. Anyway, that's that's not the point. The point is, I came up with a need of this again. Uh, I was out with my family in the mountains in here in Utah over Labor Day weekend, and we were there in the evening. We were trying to get like some sunset pictures and uh, kind of hoping that we could see some Milky Way or do some stars too. Unfortunately, in the, here in September of 2020, uh, the West Coast of the United States is doing everything it can to try to burn itself up. <laughs> we have we have most of California on fire, and uh, it's spreading all over. And we've had lots of fires in Utah. There was a, a lot of smoke in the air, so like dangerous levels of smoke in the air. We still went up in the mountains, hoping maybe if we got a little higher elevation, the smoke wouldn't be there as thick, and maybe we'd be kind of above it a little bit. Yeah, we didn't. It was still there. It made it hard to shoot anything, and uh, we still had a good time. It was still fun for us to be out there out on, on a lake in the mountains and, and tr having some time together on Labor Day. But um, what I decided to do, since the stars weren't an option... I thought, well, there's cabins that have lights on. The smoke kind of gives this like hazy feel. There's still a lake here. Maybe I can get a, a fun picture of that cabin with the lake and lights reflecting and maybe the smoke will look different and, and we'll give it a try. It was really dark, really, really dark at this point. And I wanted to have more of the scene in focus. That means a stop down aperture and a long shutter speed. In fact, as I took a photo, 30 seconds wasn't even enough. It would, I barely, it was still a black frame, essentially. It was so dark where we were at. Even though there were some like lights on these cabins, uh, they were far enough away. They just really didn't offer any light for the foreground that I was trying to get. There was no moon. The, the smoke was just obliterating all of the other light, and it was it was super dark. So I needed to use a, I needed bolt mode. I needed longer than 30 seconds on the shutter speed. I looked at my bag and I could not find my cable release anywhere for the shutter. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? I guess I could hold my finger on the shutter button for two or three minutes. Um, but I wasn't excited about that idea. And then I, I remembered, hey, there's the Canon Camera Connect app. I wonder if I put it in bold mode, if I can just, you know, hold the shutter button on my phone screen instead of on my camera, reduce the camera shake that I might introduce and, and get shutters, get, uh, get images for, for as long as I wanted. It was even better than I expected. <laughs> when I got the connected, the app connected to the camera, 
And within bulb mode, if I just hit the shutter button, it actually turns then to a stop button and starts this timer. So you can see how long, how much time has elapsed with the, the shutter open. And you can then just hit the stop button when you are done. And I got two minute, three minute, and five minute exposures with no fuss. It was really great. I loved the experience. So that's my dude out of the week, the Canon Connect or Canon Camera Connect app. And if you have a Canon camera with Wi-Fi, you really need to download it, play around with it so that you just have it as another tool for, for using it. Um, I've had lots of cases where I liked it, but this was a, a new one where I used it in bulb mode and uh, didn't really know that that would do that until I tried it. And so now you know, and, and hopefully you can get it. And and if you're not a Canon shooter, look at the, the brand of camera that you do have and what kind of connectivity, what kind of app do they have and go poke around in it and check it out. It's another resource just to make sure you're, you're aware of as you are, are looking at things. All right, that's it for this episode. I want to remind you, masterphotographypodcast.com is where you can find the show notes, and it's the home for the show, our Facebook group. The link is there in the show notes. You can find my work over at jsharmanphotos.com or my other podcast, phototacopodcast.com. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for me are also in the show notes. I don't need to say I'm here. You can go find them there if you're interested. I'd love to have you follow and, and uh, engage and interact with me on social media. I do post quite a bit, especially on Twitter, about the things I'm thinking about in photography. And uh, with that, I want to thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again in another seven days. 